Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by Cityco, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from Cityco, and today I'm talking to Paul Martin of the LGBT Foundation. We're going to be talking about the foundation, but also about the history and the evolution of the village. Paul, can you start us at the beginning, run us through the history of the foundation? Certainly, and good to meet with you, and thanks for uh, interviewing me. Um, yeah, the, the foundation's been uh, going in its current guise since uh, around about 2000, but before that, there were a couple of other predecessor organisations. So there's been a continuous uh, LGBT organisation in the city of Manchester since about 1975, uh, where uh, six gay men got together um, and uh, started to run a helpline, a switchboard, um, from someone's back bedroom. So that's where... Um, it, it kind of uh, organisations sort of started. Although the history, the, the the city has got a rich history of LGBT equality, and actually, the probably the modern LGBT equality movement actually was founded in Manchester City Centre in 1964, when uh, a group of people got together and in Church House on Deansgate, actually. So, um, uh, I actually had a first public meeting that was advertised in the Manchester. Another news. one of the firsts. For yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, uh, extraordinary bravery of people in 1964 putting um, uh, articles in, in in the local press and actually inviting people to come and talk about um, homosexual equality. So, you know, um, fantastic. And were, they, were they at that time, presumably there were links with similar things that were going on in Soho and in London and, and or was it was it actually sort of self-generated? Yeah, self-generated really. I mean, from, from that meeting, we had the early start of the what became the LGBT liberation movement, gay liberation um, and uh, the campaign for homosexual, homosexual equality uh, came out of that as well. And then, of course, the very famous and iconic Never Going Underground um, sort of uh, uh, campaign uh, also came out of that. And we've just recently had a, a fantastic uh, retrospective exhibition at the People's History Museum in the last 50 years uh, of, of, of LGBT equality. I mean, Public History Museum, People's History Museum did an amazing uh, job in terms of curating sort of people's experiences and, 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 and people's memories and stuff. Really brilliant exhibition. That they rightly won a huge number of People's awards. History Museum interview coming up. Excellent. <laughs> Make sure they talk about that because it's something that, that they've been really proud of. And also what's been really fantastic is that they've been um, getting their LGBT liberation movement, uh, the story to be told with different generations and stuff and they've just won a, a children's and young people's award as well so actually getting that information out to the under eights and stuff is brilliant and they've done a fantastic job with that. and continuing that story so yeah, it's not absolutely. just history absolutely. from 40 50 years ago yeah absolutely doing some great stuff so you're in the early 70s um, I'm not in the early 70s. I'm a lot younger early 70s. than that. I, I, do have a, I do have a feeling, vaguely remembering the early 70s, the idea of, of, of people trying to get a switchboard in the back in their back bedroom from... Well, was it British Telecom at the time? No, it would probably be the post, the GPO at the, t at the time. Been, yeah. I can't imagine the dedication that that must have taken from a nationalised bureaucracy to do that. No, absolutely. And, and again, another first for uh, Manchester. If we move up to the uh, mid-80s, a group of people that um, started to develop the helpline turned it into firstly gay switchboard then lesbian and gay switchboard and then lgbt uh, switchboard but uh, in the mid 80s they worked with the council and the council actually bid for some money from central government to actually uh, build the first purpose-built gay center in the country uh, on the Sydney Street. Years, yeah was... yeah yeah and so and interestingly uh Hesseltine was uh very very supportive of you know not just uh regional uh development but also sort of like 
inner city regeneration. Of course, we'll talk about the gay village uh, in a bit, I'm sure. But the Central Manchester Development Corporation was the first uh, institution that actually started to invest significantly um, in the area. And that was all part of uh, Michael Hesertine's kind of like big regionalisation campaign. So the, the, the different parts of the Tory party and different government ministers were, you know, much more supportive than others. I, I suppose it fits with that, that sort of liberal wing and the, the social liberal wing that has always been less so these days perhaps yeah, yeah. Uh, but an important part of the Tory party as much as it has been other parties as well well of course the central Manchester Development Corporation was all much about opening up the waterways and opening up sort of like you know into inner city kind of you know revival um, it, it, it's interesting that um, the our Manchester story that's currently uh, uh, part of the Manchester City Council's big sort of strategy uh, they, they've just recently uh, done an exhibition for uh, which I've not been to so I'm only talking about what other people have told me but the 80s uh, the period of the 80s telling the Manchester story, often people were saying it was quite negative. And yet some people who came to this city in the 80s, because it had the best gay scene in the country, it had had a very vibrant underground gay scene. It had a very, very vibrant uh, LGBT community. And people were saying, yeah, it might have politically been a really difficult time for the city during the 80s. But actually for some communities, it was the best time. It was brilliant. And we'll we'll talk about the the history of the gay village in a minute, but certainly my memories of the mid eighties were, um, yeah, okay, you had a few clubs elsewhere, but this was where nightlife was happening, and Absolutely. if you were, well, gay, straight, whatever, if you were vaguely trendy, you would you would come to parties here because you felt relatively safe. If you were slightly different, wanted to dress different, wanted to be different in any way whatsoever, because the rest of the city was. Uh, Brannigan's type places apart from a few Hacienda and, and so on that we all know about yeah a bit before my time but I mean I, I came to uh, Manchester in 1989 but uh, there's there's lots of tales and, and just as I suppose the, the, the village started to uh, come into its own uh, with the development of mantos in the early 90s and the opening up of the windows because of course up until that point um, most of the uh, gay bars um, and all of the gay clubs you know you had to knock three times and ask for Alice to kind of get in type of a, a approach a nice thing in a way. Yeah, absolutely. It made you feel very, very, very uh, uh, special. It made you feel that you belonged when someone gave you the once over and went, yeah, all right, you're one of us, come in. Um, but uh, but yeah, but I think that um, it wasn't, uh, so the village didn't really exist in that kind of way, although there were venues like the New Union, the Rembrandt, Napoleons and stuff that have been there since, you know, forever. Um, but um, definitely there were lots of activities taking place across the city and there were lots of parties, I understand it, and lots of kind of gatherings Hume was a, a a really kind of like popular place for people to just to kind of go to happenings that took place in people's apartments and sort of took place in 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 sort of like the um and what were they called the the uh, uh, housing uh, yeah, the flat the flats uh, yeah I can't remember what yeah. they were called but yeah crescent, the crescent the crescent that's right um so yeah so so a really really good place to be in the eighties and early nineties we look we look back now. Uh, I was talking about it with a, with a friend a couple of weeks back, look back now and thinking about some of those parties that we went to in Squats and the Crescents and thinking, what on earth were we thinking of? But obviously as 17, 18 year olds, you don't, you don't have the same view as a 50 year old man when you're thinking back to what you do at that time. Um, so what were the reasons um, for uh, the foundation coming together then? 
Okay, so we had uh, Lesbian and Gay Switchboard uh, in the city. Uh, I moved to Manchester in 1989 um, and i just come uh, straight from uh, university where I've been involved in the Gay Sock. We've been doing uh, Safer Sex Weeks uh, amongst students and kind of came to Manchester and was quite surprised that there wasn't um, a, a, a kind of a, a, an identifiable Safer Sex movement. There wasn't an identifiable HIV prevention kind of programme aimed at gay and bisexual and I was very surprised by that. So I started volunteering at the Gay Centre and I started to kind of get to know some people at the council and started to have some conversations. I'm the type of person that, you know, is quite uh, tenacious and quite uh, vocal um, and started asking some quite searching questions and uh, met a guy called Hugh Polhampton. And Hugh at the time was um, assistant uh, town clerk. So that would be the equivalent of a of a Jeff Little deputy chief exec kind of role. Um, and he had been doing some work with central government and had actually brought down a big investment uh, fund to Manchester, the Aid Central, the Central AIDS Grant uh, from from the Department of Health. Um, and he said to me, "Well, why don't you put some ideas together?" So, with some uh, friends at the time, uh, we put together an eroticizing safer sex roadshow that we took around uh, the bars uh, and, and clubs as they existed um, in Manchester's uh, village at the time. Um, and I remember going to see Paul Orton at Clone Zone. Um, so there I am, a fresh-faced 21-year-old, being absolutely terrified to be in the presence of the managing director of this very, very well-known gay uh, sex shop. And just sort of like explain to him that I wanted to do uh, an Anne Summers-type uh, party for gay men, but at the same time eroticizing safer sex. Um, and so um, he opened the door to a storeroom, an Aladdin's cave of sex toys. I can only imagine <laughs> all sorts of things that I'm not going to uh, tell your listeners about. And there's me, probably absolutely terrified with this massive great bag being filled up with all sorts of things. Um, and he was very, very supportive and very, very helpful. Um, and so I literally took my bag of tricks round to bars and clubs um, and uh, started to get guys to talk about sex. Because of course it was really, really important that gay men um, talked about condom use and safer sex and protection. Because up until that point, um, you know, condoms have been for uh, uh, family planning and actually been for contraception. And, you know, lots of guys were quite resentful of needing to use condoms to uh, have sex because uh, they felt that it was something that was trying to um, stop them from fully expressing themselves. I'm really trying hard yes, you're doing with very my language well. <laughs> for your listeners. I don't want to frighten anybody. But, uh, but um, so I think that, that, that we... Um, I can't tell you the name of the first campaign that we did, but it involved alternatives to uh, uh, different uh, forms of sexual expression. But but what we were wanting to do is we wanting to make safer sex fun. We wanted to have conversations with guys because, of course, guys needed to talk about sex to stay alive. They needed to talk about sex to uh, protect themselves and uh, their partners. And so we spent a lot of time familiarising people with, um, uh, you know, uh, the types of sex that they could do that would protect themselves and protect their partners partners um, and we used to do great club nights the the working with the venues doing amazing
doing things in those nights and stuff and and really creating a a, a movement for change in actual fact we're currently documenting that uh, at the moment we've just had a heritage lottery uh, 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 grant and we're uh, documenting the last 30 years of safer sex in this city called Let, it's a project called let's talk about sex it'll actually be uh, showcased uh, next so you're going to uh, do a rerun of the road shows yeah so i don't i'm not sure we're going to quite a rerun of the road shows i'm not sure that uh, the, the 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 budget stretches quite that far but definitely um uh just telling the story of uh, a group of fantastic guys coming together and working for and on behalf of their communities to um you know educate people and 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 encourage people to be safer and stuff and i think that's particularly relevant today because um we have very different types of communities and very different types of ways that people organize and i think that sometimes we assume that hiv is over and that actually it's not affecting us in the way that it did and it's true to say that that the hiv is turning into much more of a long-term condition and can be managed by drugs but it is also also a long-term condition that is managed by drugs and that actually if you can avoid it is, is a good thing to do so prevention is still really really important yeah and there's been news recently that actually we're seeing a spike amongst uh, on hiv amongst heterosexual Absolutely. older yeah. people as they go through divorces and then go out and sort of enjoy themselves Absolutely. For the first time again. and um you know and 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 people are having sex a lot longer you know there's a whole range of pharmaceutical support that can enable sex to take place into you know much much older age and so we will start to see as an older gentleman <laughs> i shall say thank goodness for that <laughs> We're probably a similar age, so, you know, I'm not far behind. But uh, the reality is that, um, you know, we, we, the epidemic will be changing and we need to look at things in different kind of ways. We've also got PrEP that's come online, so the opportunity for people to take an anti-HIV medication that will actually enable them to have, you know, safer sex without necessarily using condoms and stuff. And, that. and what's your sense of the, the take-up of that? Well, it's... It, 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 in Manchester, it's been problematic because there's a national trial going on at the moment and Manchester's only just been given access to um, the, the, the the trial, the medication and stuff. So uh, we're a bit behind other parts of the country and stuff. But in London, it's been the, the take-up's been phenomenal. We expect the same to be true in, in Manchester as well and across the whole of the country, really. So starting with that campaign, then how do you move on to being a foundation with numerous employees and yeah. uh, very nice offices, I must say? <laughs> well, I think that um, we we created uh, an organisation to uh, support uh, those early uh, forays onto the gay scene called Healthy Gay Manchester. So uh, we produced one of the country's first condom and lube distribution schemes. We um, uh, developed a, a website in the uh, probably the m- mid to late 90s. So again, that was kind of quite new and quite cutting edge. Um, and then we started to put in place a, a whole range of other programs. So we uh, had uh, groups that met. We had a volunteer program. We were doing a whole range of different activities. And then we started to think that we needed to put sex in the context of guys lives so actually just focusing on their sex and making it safer was fine but actually people had a whole range of other issues as well so we started conversations with lesbian and gay switchboard um they at this point had not just the helpline but they also had support groups they also had a counseling service um and it's something that i don't particularly like 
to see replication and stuff, you know, and, and, and you know, so we had conversations with them and uh, we decided to kind of come together. And uh, in 2000, we created um, the Lesbian and Gay Foundation um, and we merged Healthy Gay Manchester with Lesbian and Gay Switchboard and we created a, a fully integrated uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual organisation. Um, and then a little bit later on, that then became fully inclusive for the trans community as well. So probably in about 2014, 15, we became LGBT Foundation. And now we provide a, a, a wide range of kind of integrated uh, services to LGBT communities. So not only do we have the HIV and sexual health services and the mental health services, but we've got uh, drugs and alcohol, we've got community safety programs, we've got, you know, an extensive range of community activities. We provide targeted support to the trans community, to lesbian and bisexual women. Um, and we've just recently started to do some work with uh, the bi community. Um, and we are uh, looking at increasing the uh, depth of, of those services, making sure that this becomes very much a, a one-stop shop for people if they need us. Um, and we also have a, a, a corresponding sort of like research, evaluation and policy program as well. And we do uh, a range of, of other activities. And I'm sure we'll talk about the Village Angels and the Village Haven in a bit uh, when we get to talk about the modern uh, Manchester LGBT village. And then how have those services uh, I mean, been affected by sort of the age of austerity over the last few years? How, how have you evolved? And I guess also what are you seeing the need for now that you'd like to be working on? Well, need is increasing all the time. And I think that absolutely most... Uh, frontline service providing organisations will say that um, with the closure of lots of different services, they are seeing you know big spikes uh, and increase of people coming to them. And we're exactly the same. So we're seeing more and more people coming to through our doors um, every single month. Um, and we have managed uh, the age of austerity uh, fairly well. Um, it's been um, quite frustrating that we've had to go through three restructures, which of course is code for uh, decrease of funding and redundancy programs. So we've lost some brilliant people uh, along the way and we've lost a lot of expertise. We've lost, we've lost a lot of organisational sort of like, you know, knowledge as well. Um, but we have tried to uh, maintain uh, the quality and the quantity of the frontline services as best we can. And what tends to happen is that our funding gets cut and we've had to restructure, cut back on things, and then slowly but surely over a 12-, 18-month period built it back up. We've become very, very uh, skilled at spotting and sniffing out funding uh, from 100 yards and being as inventive and as creative as we possibly can. Um, and so... You know, we're round about the two million pound mark, so that makes us quite a large organisation in Manchester. But in terms of the forty thousand people or so that we support every year, it's incredible value for money. Um, we've got just under fifty staff, we've got just over two hundred volunteers, so a big community of people working um, uh, uh, tirelessly, really, on sort of LGBT equality and improving um, access for LGBT people to not just our services but also to mainstream services as well uh, given the range of services you do i mean the reality is there's never going to be enough money to do all that you would like to do in every direction but i mean how do you and your management team actually keep you know all those different priorities balanced um and see you know we've seen because we've talked about it on the podcast a lot uh a rise in rough sleeping over the last couple of years which you know the the drug issues around that the alcohol issues around that some of that is going to come back to the services that you guys offer as well 
Um, so how do you you keep balance between those services and and also um, you know make sure that you have enough that when there is an ad hoc problem or a, or a change in in the situation on the streets that you're able to flex a little bit and, and react to that. Um, it's incredibly challenging. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, one of the um, uh, real opportunities on the horizon is um, the combined authority, the uh, elected metro mayor, and the health and social care partnership that have got the devolved health and social care budget in Greater Manchester, um, and their focus around looking at how services can be integrated, how uh, people can come first, and how we see uh, uh, communities of identity like LGBT people uh, 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 served and, and and supported in a different kind of way. So. We're having some really um, progressive, really exciting conversations with uh, our colleagues uh, across Manchester City Council and the Health and Social Care Partnership at the moment, as well as the Mayor's Office and the Combined Authority about how we might be able to better serve LGBT people in the future and how we might be able to be commissioned in a more simplistic and a more integrated way. We've currently got 26 separate contracts with different parts of the Greater Manchester Health and Social Care uh, uh, sort of architecture. Now, I'm not complaining about any one of those. It's a lot contracts, of form filling, though, isn't it? But it is a lot of form filling, and it's as much form filling for our commission as it is for us. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to work on a much more simplified, much more effective, much more efficient way. Um, and recognizing that, you know, we, we've got some funding from drug and alcohol. I was talking to our drug and alcohol coordinator last night. He was saying that, you know, a significant number of the people coming forward um, are actually HIV positive. Um, he's talking about a number of the people having relationship issues, having, you know, domestic uh, abuse issues. And we have a mental health team. We have uh, a domestic abuse service. But at the moment, um, somebody that comes to us will need to be seen by everybody individually. So we need to think about how we integrate it and make it much more uh, holistic in terms of services that we provide but at the moment the way that we're commissioned doesn't allow us that because our commissioners need to see how we're spending their money and working on their issue um, and even though they might recognize there'll be mental health and domestic abuse and other issues they are only concentrated on the drug and alcohol issue so it makes it quite limiting and limited in terms of what we're able to do so I think that the opportunities present us over the next year or so is thinking, rethinking and recasting those services. But you asked the question about how you balance demand. and It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Um, I'd be uh, uh, fibbing to you if I said that it wasn't often led by where the investment comes from and what the commissioners want us to do. Um, some commissioners are very, very open to uh, innovation and talking about different ways of, of kind of working. Others are very specific in terms of, no, this funding is for this and it can only be spent on that. So, you know, it is a constant balancing act and it's, you know, we, we've been spending quite a lot of time in the last couple of years looking at um, sort of like our strategy for the next five or ten years, thinking about what it is that we want to achieve. We try to ensure that we don't suffer from mission drift, you know, going away from what it is we're about. We don't try and do everything. There are other people doing really good stuff. So partnerships become much more important for us. We've got some great partnerships that, that we're uh, embarked upon with some people that share our values and do a really, really good job. Um, and I also think that we are absolutely focused on making sure that we put LGBT people 
people first and that we actually ensure that we're not just needs led but we're also kind of uh, LGBT community led so actually we try and respond to what people say they want and in the way that they want it so um, people have said to us they want HIV testing to be evenings and weekends in a range of different locations across Greater Manchester and actually just for HIV testing week which was last week um, uh, our, our sexual health team went to every part of Greater Manchester and actually did HIV testing sessions right across the, the every, every district which was amazing and got a great response from people um, so we try to give people what it is they're asking for and what they want yeah that's an interesting one i mean it's serving that forty thousand community that you're you're talking about that's presumably across greater manchester or is that north more northwest wide well it's broader than that because it also includes our online services as well so people you know so we've got uh, quite a few services that we provide online as well um but but a lot of the numbers come from our village angels uh service you know nearly twenty thousand people a year um are somehow touched appropriately by an angel uh, every every week <laughs> very important to say at this this this, this time that you're the appropriately um yeah i mean it's interesting it's that you're not a democratic organization you get funding based on actually where the funders see the need but you're seeing a different level of demand because you're actually having to re react to the street level or, or the, to the interaction or, or on the online and, uh, and and matching those two things up must be pretty difficult actually you're, you're seeing a funding pot and classically as a organization like yours you sort of have to chase after a funding pot but actually you're aware that maybe that funding isn't quite centered on the right in the right direction because what you're understanding is things have already moved on we're seeing a similar thing we did a, a big podcast around spice um we're already seeing spice well i won't say spice use is reducing but the next issue which is opioids coming along on, onto the street and opioid use coming on, onto the street nobody's really focusing on that yet uh, except for the wonderful guys at manchester university who research all this stuff um but it's actually you can see that there's going to be funding for spice but we already need to look at that same thing, and you must have that dilemma all of the all the time. Absolutely, because I think that quite often we will identify a need for LGBT communities before the system, let's call it the system, in all its sort of like you know complexity, recognises the need for individual communities. So you talk about spice. How many people using spice at the moment might be LGBT? don't know no one's kind of like looking at who the you know what the characteristics of people using spice kind of like are really at the moment it's still probably quite soon similar with homelessness you don't hear about lgbt homelessness you know there's not a narrative going on around that um and if you take an organization like the albert kennedy trust that work with young homeless people they estimate that maybe as one in maybe as high as one in four young homeless people is actually from the lgbt communities um but actually where is the debate and discussion and and, and dialogue going on around those needs. So I think that one of the benefits for us as an organisation is that the system generally hasn't thought about the needs of LGBT people before we come along and start lobbying. So quite often, if you get to the right people at the right time, they can be very open and very responsive. One of the problems is the system doesn't think about LGBT people. And so therefore, when we go to procurement, um, very rarely LGBT people are mentioned or included. So um, it took extraordinary lobbying on our part to get LGBT people's needs met through the drug and alcohol contract for Manchester but it's not included in other parts of Greater Manchester's contract. So whilst we might be commissioned by Manchester to deliver services for LGBT communities, we're not commissioned by the rest of Greater Manchester, which then starts to get into a bit of a postcode lottery. So if someone from Bolton or Bury or Rochdale comes to us and want their drug or alcohol you know, needs kind of attended to, 
we can't always do it. We might have to somehow be, you know, quite imaginative about how we meet and support that individual's Where needs. Where their address is. Um, not necessarily that, what they might be, the presenting issue might be. So we are commissioned to provide mental health support and services. Well, I think it's probably true to say that most people that are grappling with drug and alcohol issues have also got mental health issues as well. And I think that's the really important thing, is that when you look at the whole person, you recognise that you might be presenting with drinking too much or taking too many drugs, but also it's likely that you're going through some emotional turmoil. You might be having some relationship difficulties. You might be having some problems problems or challenges with where you work you might be having some issues in terms of like your sex life so actually it's very hard sometimes to just manage to disentangle what somebody's complex needs might be um, and so part of our role is to just sit in meetings I spend a lot of my time wearing a suit sitting in meetings putting my hand up and saying don't forget the lesbian gay bisexual and trans community and people go oh yeah yeah that's right Paul yeah we mustn't forget that and then slowly but surely you get people seeing me at those meetings and go yes Paul we know we're going to do the LGBT LGBT community next and then sometimes if we're lucky we don't even have to be at the meetings and people are starting to talk about it and things and you know any any activist that works for a community of identity like I do so the BME community the disability community all of them will say the same thing is that sometimes if you're not in the room the needs of your constituent group don't get included and so part of our role is to constantly go don't forget the gays um, and the buys and the trans and do, you, the, do you have a t-shirt that says that no but it's probably not a bad idea it's certainly certainly kind of but people come to expect it and stuff i'm sure i'm part of their uh, uh, uh meeting bingo and they're sort of like oh that's it i've got that one paul martin said that i, I do want i mean do you, do you find on that on that front that things have changed over the last decade or so i mean you, i mean you were talking about the history of the foundation and it sounds like uh, the manchester city council were very supportive very early on um, certainly I know from the meetings that I go to um, that the community is mentioned in pretty well every every context um, and certainly the importance of, of the gay village to, to the city both in terms of nightlife and in terms of the community is, is always valued and always mentioned. Um, so do you think that's improved? Do you think what what else needs to be done? Um, well, I think it's slow but sure. Yes, there has been definite change. We've seen legislative change that's taken place that means that the UK has got some of the best legal protections for LGBT people than anywhere else in the world. So there's been a tremendous uh, uh, job of work that's been undertaken there. But also, in Greater Manchester, there have been sort of like, you know, significant changes. Just over 25 years ago, the chief constable at the time, James Anderton, made national headlines by talking about gays swirling in a cesspit of their own making in relation to AIDS. Um, and the way in which the gay community was policed back then was shocking and horrific. 25 years on, I was part of the uh, recruitment panel for Ian Hopkins. And so, you know, the 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 new chief constable or the prospective chief constable was asked questions about how he was going to police the LGBT community by an out gay man who was the chief executive of LGBT Foundation. So that in itself, 25 year kind of like, you know, story of, of social history. Similarly with the Bishop of Manchester. Um, the Bishop of Manchester, because we lobbied the crown um, whatever the particular uh, part of uh, the government that actually recruits uh, bishops to uh, bishop bishoprics I think it's called um, but we lobbied uh, them and um, 
the current Bishop of Manchester is the only bishop in uh, the UK that actually has in his job description that he needs to minister to the LGBT community. And he takes that very seriously. You know, we, we, we spend a lot of time with David and he is fantastic in his understanding and his commitment and his activism around LGBT equality. So it's great to have you know, those those bastions of the establishment, you know, the Church of England, the Greater Manchester Police, you know, both of the heads of those are, you know, it's part of their job description to kind of like, you know, be nice to the gays. And that's really, really important. And so therefore things have changed. I think it's a much, much better place to kind of grow up, to come out as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans. It doesn't mean there's a lot of work that still doesn't need to be done. Of course there is. Um, but, but you know, if there is a horrific hate crime, as we saw a year or so ago on the trams, the, the public response is tremendous. You know, the public sector's response is tremendous. You know, people do not accept that. It's not tolerated anymore. So I think that the, the Greater Manchester is a fantastic place to be, and there's lots of things that can be improved, but we must also recognise that the, the progress that, you know, has been made is down to lots of really brilliant people that have gone the extra mile and have lobbied and accepted you know, being lobbied and, and sort of like work to make things uh, a much better place for lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people. And I think in Greater Manchester, um, we see that all the time in terms of how they uh, respond much more positively to LGBT communities than ever before. I, I'm, I'm aware that we're almost actually at the, the sort of time span we usually have. So um, for a, for a programme on the village, I may have to come back and do that one. But um, let's talk about uh, Village Angels particularly, as, yeah. as that is a project, project that you run. Uh, again, um, what were the origins of that and, and how has that changed over the years? Well, I mean, it, it, Village Angels has been going just over five years now. And I think back then there were some real concerns that crime was on the rise, that the village might not be perceived to be the safest place um, as uh, other parts of, of, of the city centre and that there were sort of like spikes of, of, of what felt like quite targeted uh, crimes committed against uh, LGBT people. So we were quite concerned about that and we were talking to the police and we were talking to the businesses and the, the idea of the Village Angels came about not because we wanted to put vigilantes on the street but just because we felt that... Um, people were normally uh, attacked or normally targeted when they were at their most vulnerable. And we felt that the angels could be a way around that. So the angels are essentially some, you know, volunteers supported by a shift leader. Um, they come together about nine o'clock every Friday and Saturday night. They get a briefing here at our offices. They then go across to uh, the town hall and be uh, a part of the police, the city centre uh, briefing. Um, and then they come back to the village and then they just patrol the village. Uh, from about 10 o'clock through until 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, and in the early part of the evening, they are the kind of the gay tourist information centre, you know, what bars to go to, what's good, what's not so uh, good, where, what might be happening that night. And then slowly but surely as the night goes on, they're dealing with uh, uh, more and more vulnerable people. So it could be that people have lost their mates or they've lost their phone or they've lost their way. And occasionally it's because they've lost their mind and that you know, they're having a bit of a bad time. And so the angels are there to sort of like, you know, act as a support. They also act as a bridge between the door staff and the venues and the emergency services. And as um, 
they're not a replacement for the emergency services, but they are um, uh, definitely a service that the emergency services rely on to look after things for uh, a period of time. So it helps with policing and managing the nighttime economy. So um, all of our angels have uh, extraordinarily large amounts of training um, and are given a huge amount of support. And they act um, in lots of different ways. So they, in, in most extreme circumstances, they've pulled people out of the canal, they've kind of taught people down off of, you know, high buildings, they've taught people off of bridges trying to throw themselves into the canal. Um, and they've also dealt with people that are unconscious, people that have sort of like maybe uh, drunk too much, taken the wrong types of substances or kind of getting themselves into very vulnerable situations. And we found last year that we were dealing with more and more vulnerable people. So we established what we called the village haven, so a sanctuary, uh, a safe space for people to kind of like be taken to. Um, and uh, the pilot last summer, in partnership with Serenity Security and GMP and the ambulance service, was phenomenal. It worked really, really well. It was, uh, it, it was run from a caravan um, in the back street, in Richmond Street, uh, behind GAY and next to the new union. Um, and uh, it worked really, really well. The problem was it didn't have an internal toilet and that you know because the haven was running until five o'clock in the morning sometimes between three and five you need to go somewhere for a pee so we kind of felt that that we needed to find a, a building and we talked to a range of different people and in the end uh, we agreed to partner with barnabas uh, the homeless charity um, and and their centre is not used at that time of the weekend so we now base the haven out of uh, uh, that building uh, and that works from about half 11 in the evening through to about five o'clock um, in the morning and the numbers have kind of gone through the roof originally we estimated that we'd be kind of like seeing about four maybe five people uh, a, a night um, and what we what we mean by seeing a vulnerable person is usually somebody who's unconscious, somebody who is in extreme levels of difficulty, um, and uh, that number has now almost trebled. So we're now seeing you know ten, twelve, or more uh, people uh, uh, an evening and stuff. And what is really helpful is that we can be the place where people take. Um, vulnerable people, people that might be unconscious, people that might be in a difficulty, diff get in a difficult situation, bring them to us and we can then triage and assess and then we can kind of call an ambulance or let people sort of like calm down or get people sort of, you know, supported in whatever way that they need. Um, we were talking about mental health issues before, significant numbers of mental health issues, significant number of issues about mixing alcohol maybe with sort of like medication or difficulties that people kind of get themselves into. And instead of... You know, if you're walking through any city centre and you see people collapse on the floor, lots of people will just carry on walking. And instead of having to do that in the village, there's a place for people to kind of go and be brought to. And I think that's the most important thing about the Haven and the Angels working in partnership um, every Friday and every Saturday night. Do you think that's a model that works so well because the village is still so tight-knit. I mean, it's still, you know, four streets, a large number of businesses, yes, but actually, you know, there's the real sense of community here, um, residents and visitors. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a model that we tried to roll out elsewhere and it, and it very quickly, it becomes, we just need an awful lot more and we'd, we'd love to have the equivalent, you know, we run the host scheme, we'd love to have those hosts out into um, the well, maybe not till four in the morning, but but certainly till later at night to give that sort of advice. Um, and that just comes down to resource and a huge space that you've got to cover if those people aren't around. A, a village, it's, it's not quite the same, is it? 
I think that's true. I think that we are very geographically focused and I think it's a unique partnership. So the businesses help support the Angels um, and the Haven by paying for equipment. The mayor's office pays for the um, uh, sessional workers that the shift leads. But it's also a volunteer-run service. So most of the people are volunteers. And I think that that's amazing that it's run by volunteers until three or five o'clock in the morning every weekend. I mean, that's an amazing testament to them. But I also think there's something think about you know the partnership between the police the ambulance service and uh, ourselves and i would just give a little bit of a shout out to the uh, lgbt foundation staff because you know yes um you know we have got a very tight geographical area and yes there's a great partnership but also there's a tremendous dedication from the team here tremendous uh, focus on absolutely never missing a night since we opened five years ago we have never missed a weekend apart from at pride when they don't really need us in the same kind of way but every single but i suppose if you miss one weekend then somebody vulnerable the next weekend, they don't know if you're going to be there. And actually, the whole thing starts to fall apart if you don't. So you, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And it, they're, they're part of the fabric of the night out in the village now and stuff. You know, they are celebrities in their own right. You know, lots of people asked to have their photographs taken with them. I, I took all the mayoral candidates out um, at the beginning of this year because I thought it was really important since the Metro mayors were going to take responsibility for the police and crime commissioner uh, uh, role and including the budget, which we're funded out of. I thought it was really important for them to see something that's currently funded by the by the police and crime commissioner's budget that i wanted them to support um they were amazed at the number of selfies and photographs and sort of like attention that people were getting that were volunteering and working on the angels because they're part of a night out in in in, in the village and if any of your listeners want to kind of volunteer we're always recruiting volunteers we give full training full support and you know you can be guaranteed that you will get an incredibly warm uh, welcome from the the village and the village businesses and the emergency services because you you would be an incredibly important part of uh, the nighttime economy uh, in the city centre so please get in touch with us go on our website and 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 apply if you don't mind me doing that little plug I don't I was about to say where can people find out more about your work so www.lgbt.foundation please come to the new website um, and uh, uh, inquire about becoming a, a volunteer for the foundation or um, uh, specifically a village angel but I I think that that they uh, the staff and volunteers of this organization make this organization they are the absolute heartbeat um uh, we are a very extraordinary organization we are uh, we've worked really hard to be an essential part of the city uh, life and part of the city partnership um, and I think that we've worked very very hard to make sure that we you know remain relevant and that we um, remain pragmatic and we remain useful but I think that you know the people of this organization do amazing things they do tremendous things you know the budgets have been cut we've been played around with messed around with but the reality is the people of this organization have never ever ever stopped uh, caring and wanting to be there if people need them and they you know deserve all the credit that they get in terms of doing an absolutely fantastic job cool um what what we'll do is in the new year have another chat actually about the history of the village we, we didn't really get to That'd that be great. um so thanks to paul for talking to us uh, we will come back later and talk about the village as i said um you can talk to us on twitter <coughs> excuse me uh, at cottonmouth mcr or through email on podcast at cityco.com. See, I've, I've just got rid of that frog there. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on iTunes, Acast and SoundCloud or direct from the source at cityco.com podcasts. Until next time. Mm-hmm.